Hello and welcome to episode 157 of APM Success. Today I'm re-releasing an episode, an early conversation with Dr. Ed Mariano. Starting in a few weeks, we're going to have fresh content every week, but during this summer season of travel and other craziness in the financial planning business, which is growing by leaps and bounds, which is awesome, re-releasing some of this content has been very helpful. So Dr. Mariano is one of those physicians who early on was really (laughs) helpful for me personally when I was just getting started in this space. I went to the, I believe it was the 2018 Fall ASRA meeting in San Antonio, showed up to this conference with really not much more than a thesis, a professional vision for the thing that I thought could happen, that I figured could, that existed only in abstraction in my mind that I thought could exist in reality. And so I went to this conference not knowing anyone, but thinking, I bet there's a way to do specialty specific financial planning for physicians and anesthesia and pain. And I wanted to put my money where my mouth was, so to speak. So early on, I signed up for this dinner one of those, uh, you know, sign your name on a sheet of paper with seven strangers and make some new friends. And uh, Dr. Mariano and uh, Dr. El Casavani from Philly and Dr. Gary Schwartz from New York, uh, these three gentlemen were so kind in welcoming me into their community and showing me the ropes a little bit in, in no small way really helped to affirm and reaffirm my conviction about what I was doing professionally at that time. Now, four years have gone by and here we are, and it's been a great ride. Dr. Mariano is now the president of the California Society of Anesthesiology, just further evidence of his not only clinical excellence, his research leadership, but also his desire to really help others along. And I think it's really broadly recognized. He's one of those real advocates and leaders for the specialty who I'm really grateful to have gotten to know a little bit over the last couple of years. So enjoy this episode with Dr. Mariano. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Welcome to episode 30 of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Ed Mariano. Ed is a board-certified anesthesiologist, and he's double-boarded in anesthesiology and pediatric anesthesiology, and currently serves as the Chief of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Care Services and the Associate Chief of Staff for Inpatient Surgical Services at the VA in Palo Alto. He's also the Program Director for the Stanford Regional Anesthesiology and Acute Pain Medicine Fellowship, and I'm very pleased to have Ed here today. Ed, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. I appreciate your inviting me. Uh, to start us off, I know you're very involved, not only locally there at Stanford and at the VA, but also with some of the state and national organizations. So maybe you can give us just a brief overview of the current scope of responsibilities and all the things you've got going on right now. Yeah, thanks, Justin. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a really interesting career, I have to say. I mean, I, I, try to, I try to do the things that I know I can give 100% effort to. And so I try not to spread myself too thin. But that being said, I, I do do a lot of things now, you know, all of which I feel like are really important in terms of trying to move, I think, our profession and anesthesiology forward and try to develop a lot of new leaders. So for example, as you mentioned, I, I'm currently the program director for our Stanford Regional Anesthesiology and Acute Pain Medicine Fellowship Program, which I'm very happy and relieved to say has passed our two-year um, standard site visit for ACGME, and it has continuing accreditation. So that's a that's a big load off. So we feel good about that. I also, as you mentioned, I, I work 
primarily here at the VA Palo Alto, and I'm chief of our anesthesiology service, and I also um, have an associate chief of staff title, so I oversee all of our inpatient surgical services. And then I, as part of my role, respiratory therapy at Palo Alto Healthcare System is also under anesthesiology. So I also oversee that. And in addition, we also have many of our physicians um, have diverse clinical practice models that include anesthesia, pain management, critical care. And so I also oversee our clinical activities in those areas. On On a broader scale, at least on campus, I also serve on a number of committees within um, Stanford's Department of Anesthesiology, Perioperative Pain Medicine. I sit on our Governance Committee, sit on our Appointments and Promotions Committee, um, and then also our uh, Department of Finance Committee. So that way I have a fairly good idea of how the department runs and you know, where it invests, especially in terms of programmatic support for the faculty and also all the trainees in the department. Outside of there, <laughs> um, I, I serve as the Speaker of the House of Delegates for the California Society of Anesthesiologists. And as part of that role as an officer, I serve as a delegate from California to the American Society of Anesthesiologists House of Delegates. I chair the ASA Committee on Regional Anesthesia and Acute Pain Medicine. And I also uh, currently am the, the, on the Board of Directors for the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine, uh, which is the subspecialty society uh, focused on the spectrum of, of pain medicine. And those are probably my big ones. Okay, awesome. Well, that is a lot. And I'm curious to know, you know, with this, with this really long list of pretty, it sounds like pretty demanding responsibilities. Do you have, how, how do you protect yourself from not getting spread too thin, as you said, and evaluating whether or not something is, is still a, a good fit for your priority list? You can't do everything. And I think all of us who go into medicine, I think we know that it's, it's not just a job. Otherwise, there would be a lot of other job options that have better hours and probably give you more money and, and create less debt. So it can't be that. And I don't think that physicians, physicians know that. So when you come out of your, your school, when you finish your training in residency, your fellowship, you know that going in, that part of what makes medicine special is that it is a calling, it's a vocation. And the work aspect, uh, the sacrifice, is part of the reward. It actually, that by giving that part of yourself to society to improve health, to improve outcomes for patients who have to have invasive procedures like we do, that actually makes it worth it. So, so I don't think any of us really think that we're ever going to be truly balanced. That's one of my pet peeves is I, I'm not a work-life balance person only because I don't think that realistically you can expect to have these two buckets of work and life when you're a doctor and you can't expect them to be perfectly balanced. But I do believe that integration is key. And I also believe that there are certain days when maybe I'm not 100% doctor, maybe I'm 5% doctor. It'll never be zero um, because that's part of who I am. But, but I do think that you have, to, you have to decide when you're able to give 100% when you can't. And so things that I do, I mean, I, I actually thought that academics was the furthest, furthest thing for me when I was going through my training. Um, I did not think that I would have research as part of my career. I went to medical school wanting to be a good doctor and take good care of people. And, and I felt like that, that core relationship of improving that, re- that the patient well-being and patient health, I think, is the thing that I always come back to when I'm trying to ask myself should I do something or not? 
So for example, when, when I'm at the bedside with a patient and I'm taking care of that patient, I'm in charge of anesthesia and perioperative care, pain management, then I know I'm giving, that is zero degrees of separation between me and making sure the patient has a good, a positive outcome after surgery. Now, if when I'm teaching someone you know, that you know, I have a resident, I'm working with a fellow, or maybe I'm giving a lecture, then, then that's sometimes one degree of separation. I can think, well, you know, if I teach this person, if I can give some kernel of information, if I can provide the evidence in a lecture hall, and that person now goes back to his or her practice setting and can do something to help his or her patients, then, then now that's only one degree. So research, interestingly, I got into really late in my career, I feel like, just because I, I, I'd only started research at the end of my residency for the first time ever. But I got interested because someone had asked me a, a clinically relevant question, and I thought, you know, if I knew the answer to this, then I could apply that in my clinical practice. And I try to do that with all of the research projects that I do. I think, well, does it matter? If I answer this question in a research project, can someone use that information to take better care of their patients? And, and that to me, I mean, that's, that's still one degree. And then probably the last thing that I got into career-wise over the years was really advocacy and just protecting the practice, um, allowing clinicians, I think, or facilitate, facilitating good clinical practice through advocacy. And I realized that the infrastructure, the structure that we work in, the healthcare system at large has so many important influences on the way people practice medicine or just healthcare in general. And so I realized that if if doctors, if I don't if I don't represent the interests of patients and clinicians on a bigger level, then other people will, and they may not make the decisions that that we believe in that will really truly help us take good care of patients. And so I realized that advocacy is also another important activity that if, if I can help make the system easier for clinicians to do the right thing, they will. And so I consider that one degree. So I, I have this one degree of separation rule in general, and that's usually the way that I try to decide, is it worth it or not? Awesome. So something you mentioned that I'm really curious about is the recent, somewhat recent last couple of years, and you said you just rolled over the two-year anniversary of the ACGME accreditation of the Regional Anesthesiology fellowship there at uh, at Stanford and a couple other sort of pilot programs nationally. I'm really curious, what kind of work went into starting a new ACGME accredited fellowship? I'm sure that that's one of those things that it's sort of like turning the aircraft carrier, I would imagine, getting institutionally involved in, and starting something that doesn't currently exist, that's going to be replicated everywhere and needs to have a lot of processes and procedures and things standardized. You know, I, I'm curious, what did that process look like for you? How long did it take? And, and how did it, uh, how did you feel kind of when, when you got that letter in the mail that said, you know, Stanford can now offer this in an ACGME accredited fashion? That's an interesting story. We were actually talking about this recently, just amongst uh, various colleagues. We have a, a manuscript that's actually in, in review uh, right now, um, just talking a little bit about the history of uh, regional anesthesia in the United States and how training has changed so much. And I've been, I've been very fortunate to be part of this process that has gotten us to where we are right now in terms of the having national accreditation for our fellowship training programs. And and I think the journey there also um, wasn't one that I chose as much as I, I feel like it was chosen for me in a way. It was really interesting. When I started at UCSD, 
two years after my the big, very beginning of my academic career, following the completion of my fellowship, I started a new fellowship there. And it was the first one-year regional anesthesia and acute pain medicine fellowship based in California. And in order to prepare for that, what I did was I attended the spring ASRA meeting because I wanted to meet other fellowship directors. And, and there were not a lot of fellowships at the time, approximately a dozen, give or take. And that fellowship directors group, although it was informal, was highly organized. And I have to give a lot of credit to the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York, the chair there, Greg Liguori, their primary, really lead administrative and education uh, focused administrator there is Mary Hargett. And the two of them would organize meetings for the fellowship directors two times a year at the Spring ASRA meeting and the ASA. And they continue to this day and they would host this meeting so that way a voluntary group of fellowship directors and just interested regional anesthesiologists who focused on education could get together and discuss, well, what what should fellowship training look like? And interestingly, before before the ACGME program requirements even came out, uh, this voluntary group had put together three different versions, you know, an original and two updates of recommendations for fellowship training. And so I didn't have to start from scratch, which was great. And when I started the fellowship, I followed the most recently published guidelines for fellowship training, and I joined this group. And I, we went along this this interesting path where we would meet two times a year, and almost, almost in a, almost reliably, at least one of the meetings that year would be focused on debating the merits or demerits of pursuing accreditation. And if, this is a very um, passionate group of people, those who believe in regional anesthesia and the potential benefits for patients have to be passionate to make it work in their own institutions. And so you get all these people together and we used to argue back and forth for years. And then in 2013, it happened to be the, the spring annual meeting that I chaired. It was in Boston. And we had our annual fellowship directors meeting. It was Saturday morning. We always meet on Saturday morning at the spring Azure meeting. And during that meeting, we had the same discussion. And I must have been, I must have been coming off like a, a high of almost being done with chairing the meeting. And the subject came up and the, all of the people there in that room, and we never agree on anything, but we unanimously agreed that meeting that we would go ahead and pursue accreditation for the fellowship. And there you go. I, would, I, was, I, was, the, I was the one person. I mean, we were talking about this. And I think because I had gone back and forth pro and then con and pro accreditation, I was asked to lead that task force and see what it would take in order to pursue accreditation for the fellowship. So, so I became uh, the lead for this task force. I selected people amongst the fellowship directors who felt favorably and who were also fairly antagonistic uh, you know, towards accreditation because I didn't want a group of people to work with me on this project that would just echo the same feelings. That I, It's not con constructive. And I wanted to know, like, well, what are the big concerns? Like, what are people, what's holding people back you know, from trying to, to validate a national standard for what training should look like? Because at that point, I think we were already over 60 programs in the United States and Canada. 
and in a pretty short amount of time, right? So if we go for to a dozen to five times that many in roughly almost almost 10 years, you can imagine that there were a lot of different ways people would interpret fellowship training. And I think what became really important to me at the time was, what does the certificate mean for the graduate? When you finish your program, now over 60 different programs and with no national standard, what does it mean when you go and look for jobs? Because maybe the strength of the program is the reputation. Maybe it's name recognition. Maybe it's a particular mentor or a set of mentors at a program. Maybe those are the people who end up recommending you for your job. But chances are your first job is not going to be your lifetime job. So what happens when you move? And what, is it, you know, what does that certificate mean later? So I think the pursuit of accreditation really became about trying to standardize the quality and quantity of training that the fellows receive so that way by the time that they're done, everyone anywhere knows what it means. So that process, so like, I, I looked up like, well, what do other programs do? And the obstetric anesthesia fellowship programs um, were the most recent specialty program in anesthesiology that had been accredited. So I contacted um, OB anesthesiologists that I knew, tried to get some advice and to see what, like, you know, well, what were some of the, the difficulties? How did you prepare your packet? I looked up on the ACGMA website, found that they, they needed some justification in eight different domains to, so that way you could, you could express why, why does this fellowship training program have to exist? Why does it have to be a defined subspecialty? And which, and interestingly, which core specialty should it be affiliated with? Which I think was a really interesting point because for us, you know, we see that the pain medicine fellowship is a multidisciplinary fellowship, but it's, it's so multidisciplinary that you can have multiple different residency program graduates apply to the same fellowship program. And the way that we saw regional anesthesia, and regional anesthesia, I mean, is, is perioperative pain medicine first, and it's acute pain medicine, or at least a tra- trauma-related or injury-related acute pain medicine second. How do you define that? And what is the core specialty? And, and I think, at least we're biased, of course, but we really and truly believe that anesthesiology should be the core residency program for that particular fellowship. And so that has to be defined too. So all in all, to make it a, a longer story, somewhat shorter, it took about five months to put together the packet that I submitted directly to the CEO of the ACGME. It was 161 pages total. It had numerous appendices um, because you had to uh, show proof of each of those eight domains. And we waited after that for probably almost a year before we found out that ACGME had been able to meet to discuss it. And they approved it as a subspecialty of anesthesiology. Awesome. Well, congratulations. I'm sure that was a that was a really exciting uh, period of time, kind of waiting for that decision to come down. I'm curious, you know, I know that the ACGME is funded through CMS and that it's pretty rigid in the funding, meaning we can't just, for example, double the amount of residencies that there are or residency seats in a program just because of the funding constraint through CMS. So from like a financial standpoint, how does that work with funding? So it did affect, that was one of the actually... I have to say that was one of the more controversial topics related to deciding whether we would try to pursue accreditation nationally or not was at the time, because all of those fellowship programs, over 60 fellowship programs were non-accredited. They were all internally funded. 
And so the way that you could have those fellows pay their own way, so to speak, is they would work for at least one day. Some fellowships even had the fellows work two days out of their five-day week as attendings in the operating room, uh, just providing anesthesia or supervising rooms in order to earn a salary. So they would earn their base salary that way, and then they would be trainees for the remaining, uh, remaining amount of time, either three or four days per week. And some programs still do this because right now, not all fellowship programs in, in regional anesthesiology and acute medicine are currently accredited. Um, but that was one of the hot topics. And you know, one of the things that we discussed in terms of making that decision is that you can't decide if a training program is a true subspecialty if you're influenced by, by, by the financial constraints of paying for their training. Does that make sense? I think so. Can you expound on yeah. that just a tiny bit? So, so, the, so the, the, the first question we asked the fellowship directors in, if, if the economics were not part of this, would you consider your training program to have sufficient curriculum, to have sufficient material to teach fellows 100% of the time? Do you consider your fellowship a one-year fellowship program or do you consider it a, an eight-month fellowship program? And that's, and that's the first question, right? And so is it an eight- or nine-month fellowship or is it a one-year fellowship? Well, I say, well, it's a one-year fellowship. Do you think that you have enough material today that if you encompassed all of regional anesthesiology and then all of acute pain medicine, truly trying to provide a product at the end of that year where now your fellowship graduates are experts, not just in the science and clinical practice of acute pain medicine and regional anesthesiology, but they also have the leadership skills in order to help develop some of those programs at their new practices, because that's really a big driver for trying to train these new experts is that they'll hopefully improve patient access. So when you ask the fellowship directors that, of course, the answer is yes. They say, of course, in our one-year fellowship, we could train people for 100% of the time. So you say, well, if that's the case, then why would they be out of your training program for one day a week or for two days a week where they're not dedicating that time to learning what their eventual area of expertise is going to be? And so I think on its merit, you know, we, um, we had that discussion. It does affect, um, for example, when you have an ACGME accredited fellowship, you have to work with your, your own GME office locally in order to determine how much funding, how much can, um, can, how many trainees can you support? And, and that's really determined through a relationship between your local GME, the designated learning officer, and ACGME. Interesting. And then is the trend, do you think, for, the, for more and more of these programs, they're, they're going to pursue accreditation in the next you know, handful of years? Yeah, that's what we're seeing now. I mean, I think um, I give, we have a, an association for the specialty program directors meeting that gets together at the Society for Academic Anesthesiology Associations in, uh, in Chicago every November. And last year, when I gave the update, we had 22 accredited fellowship programs in regional anesthesiology and key pain medicine. And this year, this year we have 31 already. And I know that there are multiple applications that are in the works, only because I've, um, I've been contacted by multiple fellowship program directors for advice about applying. And, and, I, and I say this, that we meet two times a year, as I mentioned, and, and every year I tell people, if you are starting an application and you don't know where to start, email me, I'll send you ours. 
I will send I will send everything that we've done because it only helps it only helps graduate more trainees, right? And so so I've been pretty open about just sharing everything that we do. So I know that there are other programs that are thinking about it because I've sent uh, multiple people <laughs> recently, recently our application and some uh, little like little tips and tricks um, related to you know, trying to get your application done and just steps in the process that come from our fellowship coordinator. Yeah, makes sense. Awesome. You said something earlier that really struck me and I wanted to circle back on. You said for physicians, it's they are as a class of professional, a very conscientious bunch you take the vocation very seriously and you use this phrase the work is the reward in many cases and you're talking about work-life balance and that that kind of thing and it made me think about the current state of you know this is true across most specialties but the current state of medicine and the dynamics of different stakeholders whether it's like patients or doctors or insurers or other advanced care practitioners or hospitals there's a lot of different parties who all have a certain set of interests and not all of these uh groups are as uh you know, looking at the big picture, I'll say. And so I'm curious with what the way that you see anesthesia functioning right now and some of the, the we'll call them secular trends, the things happening in healthcare and the pressures in different directions that are frankly just demanding more and more and more of doctors for less and less and less. Are there any areas in which you're either particularly alarmed or particularly encouraged? And and how would you how would you try to frame the current landscape for for somebody who's listening in and interested to know your thoughts? That's ultimately the most important question, especially to especially to potential applicants into our specialty. I'll focus I'll focus more on anesthesiology just because I I mean that's what I do. And also I think I think it's an interesting case in point for other hospital best based medical specialties. You know, one of the difficult aspects I think in choosing a specialty first and foremost, is as a medical student, you're not exposed to everything. And that's one of the, that's one of the tough things, I think, um, that every medical student goes through is, well, what do I do for a living, knowing that I'm coming out of medical school with debt, and, and the average physician career is at least 30 years. That, that's a really hard decision to make. And then, you, and then you add to that the fact that most medical students will never rotate on every specialty, especially if you include subspecialties of uh, medical specialties. That, that's impossible. You can't. There's just not enough time. So how do you make that choice? And I think for the, for the medical student applicant who's interested in anesthesiology, I think that there are some, some important considerations. And one is you know, being a hospital-based medical specialty with some exception in terms of, for example, for pain medicine. But in general, as a practicing anesthesiologist, you, know, you generally are not the person who brings the patients in. And so you know, much of what we do, and I think that we have to embrace the identity of your specialty, and anesthesiology is, is a service-driven specialty. It's important. It, it, doesn't take any, it doesn't take any value away from the contributions of anesthesiologists to say that. If anything, I think it's really a key I think it's a, it's a key element of anesthesiology that should attract the potential anesthesiologist. Because I, I do think that um, anesthesiologists, because as a medical specialty, we are incredibly unique. You know, we, there's no job too small. There's no job too big. We do so many aspects of our day-to-day clinical practice have a lot of overlap with non-medical specialties. You know, the things that we do, it's very hands-on. 
Uh, you have to use your hands as much as your brain. You have to know how the hospital functions. You have to know hospital personnel. It also makes you appreciate, I feel like, the, the, the so many, the different roles that each person plays in contributing to the, the patient's care. I think I've always liked that about anesthesiologists. They know everybody in the operating room. That's not always true of every medical specialty, but I think it, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of satisfaction that comes from knowing the people that you work with, and I think that uh, that helps keep people going. If you look at trends, however, like if you, if you put the, the service basis of anesthesiology in context, probably one of the big concerns for even our current practicing anesthesiologists, but definitely I would say our, our residents who are still in training, is, is the continued conglomeration of anesthesiology is just the, and that's, that's reflective also in healthcare. So we're seeing a lot of, a lot of important mergers that will likely influence the delivery of healthcare in the United States. Uh, we're seeing insurers and healthcare systems merge, and we're seeing some interesting investor-based organizations develop that you know, may influence uh, future models of healthcare. And anesthesiology, I think, is a critical part of every healthcare system in that you know, we're necessary you know, for key components of healthcare delivery, like surgery. We're also a very critical component of innovation in terms of surgery and invasive procedures, because you can imagine, I mean, I don't have to think that hard to remember when robotic surgery started and how long it used to take to do some of the procedures that uh, now take about half the time or a third of the time. But without, without anesthesiology, without the, the safe care of those patients um, who are having those procedures, surgeons and other procedural specialties would never be able to learn what they learn in order to advance their, their own field and, and provide that care for our patients. So you have to understand that that's part of our role too, that we facilitate innovation. The concern, I think, is just that as a service-driven specialty, you know, when, when and how you know, do you uh, foresee anesthesiologists becoming essentially uh, nameless, faceless factory workers? And then, I, mean, that's, that's, I mean, there's an image that I've used in some talks talking about the future of our specialty, and that's actually the image that I use. How do you keep yourself from being that person you know, where you... Know, you you, you're constantly being driven to perform faster, you know, where you know, the, if you're on assembly line making widgets and your part of the widget is like a sub-widget and you have someone who's standing next to you with a stopwatch constantly trying to say, well, you know, you, you did it, you, know, you can cut, shave off a couple more seconds here and there. How do you keep, how do you keep anesthesiology from, from not suffering from those types of metrics? And I think that the way we do that is, is to continue to drive leadership. I think we continue to, you know, to develop anesthesiologists who are willing to be part of the leadership structure of wherever they work. Because I also think that what goes along with anesthesiologists knowing how everything works and knowing the people in their environment is that we're also very well positioned to be influential administrators because we listen and we, and we fix things. <laughs> That's a great point. And actually, that's a perfect segue. I also wanted to ask you, you wrote an article on Kevin MD a little while ago about basically like the five reasons that I think physicians should be the CEO of every hospital. And and you unpacked a couple points there. So can you maybe just briefly discuss that the importance of having physicians in leadership, not only 
in like departmental leadership, but in healthcare leadership and the hows and whys of, of why that's so important in your eyes? I think this is really key because I think you know, we have, we know today that I mean, physicians make up a very small percentage of CEOs of large healthcare organizations. And I mean, I would love to see that be greater, but I think we also know that you know, those individuals who are driven, who are called to be physicians, you know, don't, don't necessarily do it because they want to eventually be hospital administrators. So yeah, we get that. You know, they want to be doctors, and that's good. We need doctors. But I will say that uh, certain aspects of physician training, I think, make them well-poised to be physician administrators if they have that skill set. And because I, I also believe that people should do what they're called to do, and you can't force a good doctor you know, to be an administrator because that person is a good doctor and 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 each person I think should do what he or she is called to do. But I will say that one of the most important aspects of our calling as physicians, I think, is really to be a productive member of society. And healthcare delivery, I think, is so critical you know, to how society functions. I mean we if people get sick and they have and they or they need to have surgery and they need to have a long-term treatment for things, you know, then then they can't get back to contributing to society unless unless that process of improving, of recovering from surgery, recovering from illness is, is as efficient and as evidence-based as possible. And so physicians have a lot to do with that. I think we understand that role. I also think that physicians, and I'll, I'll give the example of anesthesiologists in particular, I think are also used to coordinating, coordinating with others to try to really accomplish a goal. So in this case, like if it's patient care, you know, then if we're standing around the operating room for a patient um, who is having you know, an invasive surgery, say, for example, and, you know, and there are complications and there are things that we have to make decisions about quickly, you know, we know how to make decisions even when you don't have consensus. We know how to deal with you know, sometimes uh, challenging personalities in order to do what's right. And I think that those skills, I think, translate out of the operating room into the boardroom just as well. I also think that you know we you know, we're we're constantly trained to look at our our mistakes, our near misses, and improve. I mean, it's part of medical culture. You know, we have morbidity and mortality conference you know, in which we discuss cases that didn't go the way that they were supposed to go, and we use those as learning opportunities. And I think that if you talk to healthcare administrators, you know, our managers, the people who walk around with clipboards around our hospitals every day. They're constantly talking about continuous process improvement. You know, well, that's not so different than what we do as physicians. You know, we constantly you know, look at the care that we provide and try to improve upon it. And I always give the example of the way that we learn to diagnose and, and treat illness. As a, as a medical student, no matter what specialty you're in, you learn how to take a history, you listen to the patient, you examine the patient, you, know, you take the presenting symptoms, your exam, you order lab tests, you get those initial lab tests in order to try to in, inform your treatment decision, and then you institute a preliminary treatment. Well, as the patient recovers or responds to that initial treatment, you're going to take that information and decide, is the treatment working? If it's not, you're going to do something different. You may get some lab tests back that take a little bit longer. And when you get those lab tests back, they may change, they may influence the way that you're treating the patient, and you're going to make a change there. And well, 
that same cycle is the exact same cycle as the continuous process improvement cycle. It just has different terms, which means that every doctor, as soon as you finish medical school, even before you do your residency, you've already learned how to, how to diagnose and treat illness, which to me, I think that the best hospital administrators, I think, really are diagnosis and treatment experts. And my bias toward anesthesiologists, of course, is that you know, we, we do this faster than everyone else <laughs> because we're in the operating room. And you know, when, when you have a crisis, when you have a change in vital signs, then you have to make that diagnosis and treatment cycle as fast as possible. And so I actually think that anesthesiologists are even better at rapid process improvement, but that's my bias. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, and actually, that's a good segue. So I was recently speaking with uh, Dr. Angie Edwards from Wake Forest, and, and she brought your name up and said that you, know, you guys were going to be collaborating a little bit in the future, and you're speaking at the upcoming SPACI conference, I believe. I will be. That's right. And, and she said that the genesis of that introduction and the invitation ultimately came over Twitter. <laughs> and obviously, you're, you know, an active Twitter user and a leader there. And I think Twitter is, you know, a way in which rapid dissemination of information has been revolutionized and brought like exponents from where we were even a handful of years ago. So I'm curious, you know, talk a little bit about the way that you've used Twitter and social media more generally to you know, to shorten the lead time on instituting important changes or disseminating important information? And, and how has your, uh, you know, for somebody who's kind of interested in maybe becoming more and more savvy online with social media and specifically in the med ed community, how would you encourage somebody to think about that? I actually started my Twitter account at that same spring meeting in 2013 you know, where I became in charge of the accreditation process or the pursuit of accreditation for the fellowship. And so that was, that was, a, that was a big meeting for me. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and Raj Gupta from Vanderbilt is the one who helped me set up my Twitter account. Nice. And <laughs> I, I, did not, I did not really know how involved I would end up getting. I would say, like, at the time, I didn't have a Facebook. I still don't have a Facebook account. Oh, I hate um, Facebook. <laughs> I just, I, I, I'm very, I'm biased, but I just think, well, I remember the way that someone tried to sell Facebook to me a few years ago was, well, oh, it's a good way to you know, keep track of what all those people in high school are doing today that you lost contact with. And I remember thinking, or I probably said this out loud, I said, you know, if I don't keep in touch with them, there's probably a reason. <laughs> but so Twitter, Twitter, I think, was really appealing at the time only because it had very short messages. So the the character count for Twitter when I signed up was only 140 characters per tweet. And Raj had shown me, well, here are some examples of what people tweet during meetings. And I thought, you know, that could be actually pretty useful because you, know, you can't be in two places at once. Our up upcoming um, anesthesiology meeting for the ASA in yeah, October is a, even a better example because you can't be in 50 places at once, which is what it feels like there. But I thought, well, with Twitter, I could actually see what people are learning because if they tweet some kernels of information, then I'll get a chance to see things that I otherwise would have missed. And so I started it from that reason, um, just trying to, to help, help summarize some of the key points that I would learn in a talk. If I'm sitting there, then I think, well, if people follow me, then they may be interested in the same topics that I'm interested in. So I'll just I'll tweet something that I think might be helpful information. I'll try to add a, um, a link to an article that the, the speaker talks about. So that way it makes it a little bit more useful. And then I started figuring out, well, you know, people actually like to see what you're seeing. So as long as there are no barriers to doing so, I would you know, take a photo. And it's like 
taking photos is the modern note taking. So you know, I just say, well, I'll take a photo and then give some context to it. And, uh, and so I'd start to share that way. And I realized that I started following a lot more people as part of uh, being involved in Twitter, just got involved in following people who like similar topics to me. And then I started branching out a little bit more, following people who speak or teach or write about things that I don't normally see, like leadership coaches, people involved in social media consulting. I also started following other medical specialists just because I thought, well, this, is, this could be very relevant, I think, to things, uh, things that I do and things that I try to um, apply to my own practice. And so I started thinking of it that, of it that way, really, as a, as a learning community. Um, and that's probably the best way I could see at least a professional use of, of social media. I think the, the personal uses, I think, aside, yeah, those are great. You can use, um, I have an Instagram account, and so that way I can share photos from you know, whatever fun thing that I've done and, uh, <laughs> and see what other people have been up to. But, but I find that Twitter is much more engaging. It's very, it, at least for, for people within our specialty, um, it, you'll see incredible activity around meetings, which is great because not everyone can go to conferences. And so I always think, well, in, there are conferences that I'll miss in the future. There are some that I'll attend and others will miss. And, and with Twitter, you don't have to feel like you're completely missing the learning opportunity, which I think is great. And then you know, when we see good articles, you know, we always you know, we try to share those with each other. And, and then uh, a friend of mine, uh, a great you know, colleague, Ankit Udani, who is one of our former residents and research fellows here, he's on faculty at Duke and started the Twitter Journal Club for anesthesiologists. And that really changed a very, I think, a very traditional method of teaching emerging research because everyone who's gone through medical training has had a journal club. Yeah, but you take that and you put it, you layer on top a Twitter conversation, and now you're getting, not only are you getting um, an international perspective, which you can use locally to try to teach your trainees so that way they can see different points of view, but oftentimes you'll actually get the authors of the paper involved, which is unheard of. Yeah, how so exciting. Direct it's really access, cool. yeah. It's really cool. So I do think it's become an incredibly po um, powerful tool. Professionalism, of course, you know, always has to be considered, you know, when posting on social media. But there are way more advantages than disadvantages, I see, at least for at least a modern, a modern physician, a modern scientist um, in being involved. Absolutely. And I know you've done so I've seen I think I've seen a white paper with your name on it that was like, here's the you know, social media for dummies, basically for physician or med ed, the med ed community. And I know there's a slide deck or two out there. I want to link to these in the show notes for everybody. So for our listeners, if you go to anesthesiasuccess.com slash 30, uh, I want to, Ed has created a lot of great resources for people who are trying to get up to speed on proper or recommended uses of social media in order to further medical education. So make sure and check out those resources there. I'll try to get a few more of those links. We'll link up to the Twitter journal club and, and others. That'd be great. So I want to bring it to a close. I, and I really appreciate your time here today, Ed. So, you know, to close us up, I'm curious, you know, of all the things you're working on right now, maybe give us a snapshot into like one or two of what you see as the most important or the most rewarding or the most worthwhile ways that you're spending your time right now. And, and what does that look like? Just maybe it might just be like, if you take us into like a day in your life, how does, what does that look like for you? A day in the life is a little harder because I think that <laughs> each day is a little different. But, but I would say that the things that I've reflected on you know, when, I'm getting, when I'm getting involved in different projects, especially today, 
as compared to when I first started my career, I have thought that the things that I get super excited about, I'll give you a real example just from this morning. I had, I got an email from a colleague with whom I've done um, projects before, and, and the me email was just a, a brainstorming idea. Like, what do you think about this particular project? What do you think, what, who do you think would be good collaborators? What do you think about this possible study design? And, and I gave it some thought, and this morning I, I wrote this person back and, and gave some alternative suggestions. I said, that's a really, really, that's a great uh, idea. It's an interesting concept. It was something that uh, we had written about together as like an unanswered question in the past. And, but I considered some, some alternative study designs and, and gave this person a couple of other ideas and then also gave some advice about you know, whether or not you, know, you may want to consider you know, diversifying the collaborator pool you know, with, with whom you normally work and just to try to, you know, just try to expand your research group and you know, try to get other opinions you know, people maybe don't always agree, as I mentioned before, which I think is really a good thing. You know, also to try to vet potential collaborators to see like, are people willing to do the work? You know, there are a lot of people who want to say they want to be involved in projects but aren't willing to do the work. And I think after that, I, I sent off that, that message and I started thinking about how my own perspective has changed, I think, as a, you know, as a, as a, not just as a clinician scientist and as a mentor. And I look at my own productivity and I have to say that in the years that I've been in my current position, my current administrative role, I really haven't focused so much on my own primary research direction as much as I have tried to listen to other people who are developing their research directions and, and tried to help people find their own path and help them with other ideas. And I have to say that if I compare that approach, really less focus on myself and more on other people versus the early part of my career, which is very self-focused and trying to determine my own research path and consistency and developing reputation. If you look at my publication productivity, it's much greater in the latter part of my career where I've been uh, less focused on myself. And so I would say that a good part of what I do in terms of teaching and mentoring is really trying to listen to what people want to do with their career. And I, I think that, unfortunately, the, you know, the, the pipeline of academic physicians is, is not super strong. I think we could use more people. You know, we need to try to recruit and retain the people who have enthusiasm and and for that, we'll need some really good mentors. Probably the second thing that um, I would say is a heavy influence right now is probably the work I'm doing with the National Academy of Medicine. It's a project that's been going on you know, for about a year. What I like about it is that it's a, it's a public-private partnership. It's on a national level addressing the opioid epidemic. And I've had a chance to directly work with representatives from multiple government agencies plus uh, nonprofits, other professional societies. You know, we have an interesting, a very broad, as you can imagine, a set of objectives. But you know, I sit on uh, two work groups, uh, the research, research and data metrics, and another work group about pain management prescribing guidelines and evidence standards. And I think that the, what I've learned, I feel like in this process so far, is just how many people not just one like care about right what's you know, what we're dealing with in terms of the opioid epidemic but we have a lot of people who really care about the pain that people are suffering from and trying to improve pain management and um, 
And and I do think that at the end of this, of the work that we do, it's, I mean, nothing is going to be solved, of course, but I think we'll make some really big steps. I think one in terms of defining what good pain management looks like and providing some some research direction, I think, for answering some of the unanswered questions that can help people suffering from pain. I think we will have some guidance on providing non-opioid alternatives, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, work with some of our insurers and other government agencies on trying to make sure patients have access and proper payment for, for those effective pain, uh, pain modalities. And then I, I think another thing that will be really key is in integrating good pain management education into all levels of health professionals education. And that's one of the other work groups you know, that, uh, that we're working with. That's one of their objectives. And then the other work group that I think is really critical is just acknowledging that addiction is a brain disease and try to remove some of the stigma associated. Um, because I do think that we're all learning with the opioid crisis that, you know, that there are really, there's no quality control in terms of how people recover from opioid addiction. It's not like you can go on hospital compare like we can for um, other aspects of healthcare services and see how uh, those facilities are compared against each other in some, you know, some national metric. There are no national quality metrics, but I think we can't, we can't address the crisis of, you know, of prescription and illicit opioids without taking care of the people who are suffering from addiction. And I think that those have to go together um, I think we have to you know, provide a comprehensive system you know, that manages pain well, that defines when opioids are appropriate, because they are. You know, they, they have indications. But we also have to take care of the patients um, you know, who you know, have become addicted and who are trying to, um, you know, to decrease their dependence on opioids and have support systems for them, too. So, so that's, that's a project that I feel super passionate about right now. And I'm looking forward to a lot of the the new work that's uh, that we're going to do in the coming months. Cool. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that. And Dr. Ed Mariano, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for joining us on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. Thanks, Justin. Appreciate it. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.